0: the examination of the galaxies of space, images begin to appear. Images of strange and powerful forces. But of all the forces in the universe, the two most powerful Hulk Hogan and the
1: ultimate warrior. Prepare to explode. Champion versus champion. Title for title. It's the ultimate challenge. It's WrestleMania!
0: Greetings, Grapple fans, and it's time once again for, well, something a little bit different this time. Usually it's my erstwhile colleague Lorcan that handles this introduction, but uh, due to some technological issues, we are kicking it in a little bit different this week. Um, So I am Simon Cross, as always, and my co-host, who you will hear shortly, uh, is Lorcan Mullen. And this week we take a bit of a dive... Into uh, his book The Confessions of a Smart Wrestling Fan uh, you'll hear a little bit of a chat uh, between myself and Lorcan where we discuss uh, the book itself and I'm going to put my dulcet audio tones to use I'm not quite Tom Hardy with his bedtime stories but uh, I will read out to you listeners the first chapter, a little amuse bouche, little Palette warmer to see if you like it. <laughs> okay. Well, now let's throw to me, talking to Lorcan. So, yes, listeners, as I've mentioned, we are going to take a little bit of a delve into my co-host Lorcan's written words. Uh, we are talking about Confessions of a Smart Wrestling Fan, uh, which is available, of course, still on Amazon for all of the those wanting to purchase it. There you go, cheap plug for you there, Lorcan. So, I know you, like the book's been written for a long time now, so I want you to cast your mind back a little bit. W- what was your dr- motivation to write the book in the first place?
1: Well, I don't know if you mentioned in the introduction that you saw me do the very first version of the live show. So, it, the, the, this is actually covered in a chapter in the book when I start recalling the... Uh, did you hear a vibration there at all? I did, but power through. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I'm t- just so people know, in case they don't, I'm talking on the phone because I don't currently have a laptop that will work. So there might be some... I'm a popular person, Simon, so people might have been texting me as the, day go- as the recording goes on. But essentially, <laughs> I'd gone to Edinburgh uh, when I was 26, fell in love with the, the City and the Fringe Festival, and I knew I wanted to go up there and do a show. That was what led me to actually going to Bedworth to our to the improv group that was when we met. Just to get back into get into some sort of sense of a comedy world. I've been doing some acting, but not that was like a local theatre thing. Mm-hmm. Like I've always had something going as far as performing or creativity. Now it's podcasts. For a while it was improv and stand up. And the, and before that it was like being a child actor and everything. And so I knew I wanted to do an Edinburgh show, but I also knew I needed to find something that I could talk about for an hour. And really, it should be not just something you can talk about for an hour, but something you could talk about for multiple hours and whittle it down to a good hour, hopefully. Yeah. And when I told my friend that wrestling was what I wanted to talk about, he was like, "Yeah, you could do a show about wrestling." It
0: um, was <laughs> just that that nod of like, "I'll be fine." <laughs>
1: And so you saw the very first, very first draft version of it in the Bedworth Arts Centre. And you would have seen me notice that, because there's, there's, I did record, that was the only one of them I filmed and watched back. Yeah. You can see a moment where I realised that I'd gone an hour and I hadn't reached the 21st century yet. <laughs> And it was meant at that moment to be more about the history of pro wrestling, almost like a TED talk, I suppose, before there was a TED talk. Yeah. About what professional wrestling was, and trying to justify it in an intellectual sense. So Obviously, there's a double meaning. It's smart wrestling fan. And so that uh, that was when I realised I need to bring this down, and I can't just cover the whole history of wrestling. And there's terms I think has become increasingly popular, a popular term to describe. A uh, discovery that writers make and that is that there's u- unanimity in specificity
0: okay it now is... for those of us who aren't um as grammatically uh beefed up uh, could, could you break that down a little bit essentially
1: what it was is that there's the more personal you get in your story that you're telling the more people will relate to it Not even that they've necessarily had the shared events, just that they have specific feelings that grow from their own experiences. So it might be that you mature in life through your record collection. Mm. And so how your tastes and your opinions evolve and how your life is affected by your obsessions, you therefore can translate that into understanding other people just growing their life through their obsessions. Like I saw a show around that time uh, in Edinburgh by a guy called Toby Haydock who did a show all about his love of Doctor Who and I've never been a Doctor Who fan yeah. but I can understand fandom, I can understand obsession but also with at least a sense of self-reflection and self-mockery okay. which is what it was meant to be so what inst- What was supposed to be like the definitive intellectual breakdown of pro wrestling and a, a history for everyone to understand Mm-hmm. instead became me talking about my life as a wrestling fan. Yeah. And as I said, that was something I could talk about for hours and hours and hours. But I only had 55 minutes to do it mm-hmm. in a show. So I had to break that down, and also I had an interactive game element to it. Um, so really, it was barely scratching the surface. And so I thought, the logical thing to expand this so that I can do it truly, properly would be to do it as a book. And again, it was supposed to be starting off as a history. Yeah. Which I guess is what Jim Smallman did with that. I'm sorry, I love you. Mm. But again, very soon I realized it's better when I'm talking about myself, arrogance, and I guess in a way it is. You know, I was writing a memoir before I turned 30. (laughs) But it works within the frame. And then when I realized that I could model it on a structure based on uh, a very important book in British pop culture in the 90s, which was Fever Pitch. Yeah. That was when I really hit the ground. And it took me about two years to write the book, because I did the show in 2010. Then I brought it back for a one-off in 2011, which was probably my best gig ever, because I got a big audience for just a one-off gig. Big in relative terms. It It was a full house, a small venue, but a full house. Yeah. And they had a really good time. And then I... And then after that, I was like, I couldn't do Edinburgh again for a while because it, I'd done it two years in a row and it had beaten me. Mm. I was I a was wrecked by
0: the second one. Didn't and you, just, just to uh, put aside, didn't you camp for at least one of those, if memory serves?
1: Oh, I camped all the time, Simon. No, uh, <laughs> I... Uh, yeah, I did spend... The, the convention on a Smart Wrestling Fan Show I did entirely. Uh, I, I would take a bus that took 50 minutes out to get out of Edinburgh city centre to a campsite and they stuck me really far at the back of it as well mm. i guess because i was there for the whole time and that was an experience you could only do it when you're 26 and it's your first time doing it. you know like when i did the second one i was like i need to see <laughs> <laughs> you know.
0: <laughs>
1: and that's my policy every year i've gone up to edinburgh since i could imagine
0: just like a, produc- a production assistant somewhere going okay uh dressing room demands for Lorcan, um four walls Ceiling, an element of heat. <laughs> God, these prima donnas. Um, and,
1: and so yeah, that was the that was the that was the intent. That that was so. Then it was like, let's. I'd always wanted to write a book, and I was approaching thirty at that point, mm-hmm. and I had certain goals I wanted to do. that I thought, okay, well, this is a good deadline to work towards. And so I wrote it, left it alone, wrote it over two years, and then the. Day before my thirtieth birthday, I put it up on Amazon. Okay, as an ebook. I never even tried. To get it. I never even tried to get it published. So, part of me is kind of trying to try and do it now, actually, and, and rewrite it and offer it up. Okay, because no one's still they still have done fever pitch and spandex, which is how I described it to someone. Yeah, that's if, if you can. Book club in four words. You're, you're on to a winner. In it. Yeah, so I might try and do it. And if two of those words are a book that sold over millions million people <laughs> in movies, you know? Yeah, true. You not know I'm saying? That's what would happen to Confessions of a Wrestling Family. It just, it's, it's easily understandable
0: to people. Okay, there's, yeah? there's two points I want to pick up on that. You've mentioned your 30th birthday a lot there. Was it always a dream to have something of your own written by your, and published out there by your 30th birthday? Well, not published necessarily.
1: I've, I've always liked the punk spirit from very early on. And hence why I love podcasts so much because it can be as long or as short as you want about any subject you like. Mm. And that was kind of the sense with the book. It was like, because like, well, really, I mean, I've said this to you before. I can't remember if I was saying in the podcast, but the guy, uh guy who, well, at least I follow on Twitter, I don't know if you do, called John Lister. I've
0: seen. He was this one most of the stuff.
1: Guys. Yeah, he was. I might have sent you like tweets he's done, but um. He's one of two guys, the two people that were writing pretty much all of PowerSlam when I started reading PowerSlam. Yes, that's where I it's remember the him name. Tim yeah. Martin. Yeah. Yeah. And he does book reviews. And I just want you to on the book was the UK fan forum. Do you remember this actually? That when I did one of my dress rehearsals for the show was an Eveshin and it died on its ass. And someone went to that show and went on the UK fan forum and said it was shit. <laughs> and this. Someone, someone independent of me had put a post saying, "Oh look, I saw this in the Edinburgh fringe brochure. Yeah. I'll probably go and see." And he said, "Don't go see it, shit." And I think I asked you and a couple of other people to try and join in to the forum and do a points because I couldn't get in. They like I don't know if they're just like the admins or the bods or you know, yeah, bots or whatever, just weren't allowing new people in. I was just someone please get on there and just say a counter argument that it's not that bad and it's just a dress rehearsal. So I finally did get on and did get to make a couple of comments. But anyway, on the UK fan forum, after I put the book up, I immediately just went on to UK fan forum and said, I've done this book. Here it is if you guys want to read it. It's 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 only an ebook. You don't have to you know so you will need to have a Kindle or an apple yeah. or whatever. One of the very first posts points out that my blurb that I've written, which was the worst part of it that I've written Uh, already had like a typo in it or maybe in the introduction and so i was like okay shit i'll okay i'll change that one yeah because i didn't get i didn't get a sub editor i mean i I, it's gone through another drafted between the public like if you buy the book now and simon reads along you'll notice there are some differences Mm. a couple of grammatical differences some bits of pieces i've changed because i am going to rewrite it i think so maybe people should hold off a little bit on. well i don't know We'll, we'll, we'll work something out.
0: Ah, well, like, you've sort of um, accidentally stumbled across one of the questions I'd written down. It's like, what would an updated version even contain? Because well, you've still do... been a child. That's not changed.
1: Yeah, yeah, well, what I would do is just tidy up some of the grammar. Um, I mean, the very first opinion I express in the book that you'll have read is something I don't agree with at all. Whereas, basically, men be like this. Women be like this. And I do <laughs> And to be fair, I qualified it at the time. Mm-hmm. But I still think it's less, it's more about the, the nerdy mindset. And I think the stereotype even back then, only eight years ago, was that that was more what men were like than women. And it was just, no, women could be like that. It's just we don't let them play. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but I, so I would retain that. So the idea would be I would maybe do thoughts 10 years on, or like revised thoughts. So at the end of every chapter, put in like a postscript. Oh, okay. And, and say i agree with this i disagree with that this is what then this is what the wrestling world's like now in comparison you know obviously now because of the people in the first chapter the image that we have of hulk hogan and the image that we have of the ultimate warrior has gone through quite a few changes in the last
0: yeah uh, eight nine years that aren't addressed in the book no and not all and mostly negative changes as well
1: and the way that I, sum- the, the analogy I use at the end for what I think the Ultimate Warriors compared to Hulk Hogan, I don't think it's entirely fair. Hmm. But, um, yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah, I don't think it's entirely fair. But, uh, but it's there, and I'm not going to get rid of it. Like I said, I'll just change, you know, still some of the, there are probably still some grammatical errors, errors, how ironic. Uh, there are still some grammatical errors that you'll probably have spotted and hopefully will be able to read through as you're going along. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, maybe when, maybe they would say, no, you've got to write a completely new book. Um, and you've got to do it from 40 years perspective. Cause I honestly don't know how many more matches I would add as chapters. I don't think there are as many significant changing points in my life as a fan. I guess maybe I do a, a chapter about Omega Okada. Mm. I do a chapter about, what would I do a chapter? I'd probably do an AEW chapter. Yeah. Perhaps
0: about when we went to the live. <laughs> <stage throughout World's- laughs> <laughs> I don't think the world's ready for your um, your level of hatred. <laughs> it wasn't hatred? It was just exhaustion. Yeah. Very quick exhaustion, really.
1: Um, it wasn't a show meant for fans. It wasn't meant for us. There, it was meant for the people that were actually Yeah, we were. We were, the, we were we just props. Yep. Yeah. yeah, we were. We were supporting players that somehow managed to pay fifty quid for the privilege. Mm. No, us though.
0: Yeah. yeah, but um, still, point but, stands.
1: Yeah, and but yeah, I guess a lot of it now would be about the podcast and how that's changed. How like how you consume wrestling. There'd probably be chapters that will fall out of the chronological order now because there'd be things like misawa Kawada mm. or um, uh, yeah, those sort of things. Or so, well, I I I probably do a chapter about the wrestler. Maybe a chapter about Randy the Ram. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Before. That was probably done before this the, this book came out. It was around? Yeah, it was done before it because the book came out in 2013. Yeah, And the rest of it was 2000. It didn't include it then. Operation so included it now. Yeah,
0: I was going to say like.
1: But I would also have to touch about uh, either the Undertaker versus Brock Lesnar or Brian mm. Nagelson versus Batista versus Randy Orton. You've got to do a chapter about WrestleMania
0: 30. Yeah, because I was I was thinking what would I have as my chapters, and yeah, I, I'm inclined to going to make. I'm inclined to agree that <laughs> I, I personally would have had WrestleMania 30 as uh, a defining moment. Yeah, both like inside the like both of what I witnessed as a fan and how I experienced it as a fan, and that's what I like about like the whole <clears throat> what we do now and how it's sort of like progressed from the start. Like Alan Tys started be, be, through this book essentially. Mm. Um yeah. and now it's grown into this it's thing tough, where uh, then the book carried it on. Yeah. yeah. Where like selfishly for me it's it's helped broaden my horizons and I hope it's done the same for others as well. But just, just try and like just put your opinion out there and like if people like to listen to it, people like to listen to it. If they don't, they don't. It's yeah, yeah and um what I like both in the at the way you talk about the book and the way I hope both of us try and come across is we're very aware that we don't have all the answers. We're not trying to come across yeah. like we, we are the know Yeah, well, John Lister, sorry, I
1: have to go back to that, actually, because when I put it on the UK Fan Forum, John Lister read it, like, almost within the day of me putting it up there, uh, saying very bluntly that the blurb did not give me much hope. It is a bad blurb. Yeah. Um, they have people hired to do that usually. And I was just exhausted at that point. You know, I, I w- worked so hard for the last few weeks to get it done in- mm. for my birthday. An Arbitrary dentist I'd only set myself. And, uh, but then he said he was terrific. Like, he was really, really kind about it. Really nice. And he's, there's a review of it on his book, uh, Wrestling Books website. Uh, I don't know if you want to try and Google it and look it up as it goes along. But then, And then at a later point... He referenced it again because I had a Google alert for it. So kind it of like three years later, it's something that Google alert again again. because he was doing a little recounting of like some archival things he found in his possession. Yeah. love of his time wrestling fan. He said, this isn't the definitive account of being a wrestling fan. And then in brackets, he said, for that, you should read some versions of a smart wrestling mm-hmm. fan. So, you know, you can't really take a greater compliment. Than
0: that. No, no, that's um, that's... Yeah. sorry um, what I was going to say is like John Lister's praise is like supreme praise and um, what I'd like to ask as well because you mentioned like uh, and it'll come up as I recount to our dear listeners a little amuse bouche of the first chapter I'm just going to give you guys a little sneak sneak preview now um, you mentioned wrestling not being cool at some point in it. How closeted a wrestling fan yeah. were you growing up?
1: Yeah. How positive? Closeted. Closeted. But, uh, fairly. Um, I didn't want to admit to it because you've been ridiculed for it. There's probably, again, the chapters will probably address it later mm. on that in the mid-90s in the it was not cool to like wrestling. No. That and it was not the overwhelmingly Thing at the playground like it was in nineteen ninety 1990, ninety two nineteen ninety ninety two in in England anyway in wow yeah, um, which is
0: weird because by the time I was in the playground you're looking at your your late nineties it yeah, sort but, of yeah, bounced yeah. until the attitude so yeah one one last little thing that I wanted to ask is um as our listeners will soon find out in chapter one, you reference uh dear cousin matthew um did dear cousin Matthew ever get back? into wrestling at all
1: well i'm gonna hold off on revealing that that's a tease of you to get back into to to read the rest of the book that is answered you might have to go deep into the book to find out the the reveal of that That, that's that's I, i do like that that i think that's such the key of the first chapter isn't it like who's the guy that introduces it to you yeah uh Who's the, gateway? Who's the gateway drug, I
0: suppose? <laughs> Who's that dealer who gives you the first fix for free? Usually you have a battered VHS or something like that.
1: Interesting. It's weird that a few family members read the book. Um, Callum, my brother Callum did. Oh, cool. Uh, and Matthew did. I don't know if anyone else did. But he found that that, that was fascinating too. Because it's pretty personal. You know, it is mm. a memoir. It's not just about wrestling. It is about me and the... Things that I went through between the ages
0: of six and thirty. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been like a little, but who is the author section? I'm going to give you a little bit of a treat coming up next. Stay tuned. What's up? Hello again, listeners. You've just heard me talk to Lorcan about the book, cut a little bit short by some technical gremlins that have besieged us the entire week. So now I'm going to deliver on our promise from earlier and give you Chapter 1 of Confessions of a Smart Wrestling Fan. And here we go. Chapter 1, Hulk Hogan vs. The Ultimate Warrior. WrestleMania 6, 1st of April, 1990. There's a system that I believe is more symptomatic to the male psyche. My relatively small amount of interaction with the female condition means that this comes entirely from a place of ignorance and arrogance, which is also known as the default mindset of all comments made on the internet. The system is one of order. Where a woman would usually want things to be cleaned, a man would want things to be in order. Even in a man's messy bedroom, there is usually a system within, so he knows where things are. We may like to chronicle our possessions in a particular order. It may be in genre order like my DVD collection. It may be in alphabetical order, like my DVD collection. It may even be in chronological order, like my DVD collection. Even in the abstract, there is still a self-maintained order of meritocracy. An object can always be placed in front of one and behind another. Most men, when given the following, who would win in the fight scenarios would immediately know the winner and the means of victory. Number one, Mike Tyson versus Muhammad Ali. Number two, Batman vs. Superman Number 3. My Cousin Matthew vs. Your Dad In case you're curious, the winners would be Number 1. Ali using the same rope-a-dope strategy that overcame George Foreman Number 2. Batman, when given adequate time to prepare, can defeat anyone. His most famous victory over Superman came in the seminal 1986 Frank Miller series, The Dark Knight Returns. Batman was able to conquer his caped counterpart for a combination of his strength-enhanced armor suit, assistance from an embittered one-armed Oliver Queen hitting the big blue boy scout with a kryptonite-laced arrow, and the elderly Bruce Wayne's suicidal psychosis developed from years of guilt over the death of Tim Drake, the second Robin, and Wayne's subsequent descent into extremist right-wing paranoia. Number three, My Cousin Matthew Would Batter Your Dad He would destroy him. It was my cousin Matthew who was to blame more than anyone else for my unhealthiest obsession. He was the dealer who handed me my gateway drug. There's always a sports figure that transfixed the public with their apparent invulnerability. Today it's Usain Bolt, but in the late 80s and very early 90s it was Mike Tyson. He was the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world, undefeated after 37 fights, and had recently dispatched British favourite, Frank Bruno. I thought I spoke for the rest of the world when I confidently declared to my cousin Matthew that there was no person alive who could defeat Mike Tyson. My cousin Matthew looked at me like so many would in the future, with a combination of condescension and contempt as he shook his head and assured me that he knew of someone who could beat Mike Tyson. Who would beat Mike Tyson, in fact. Hulk Hogan, my cousin Matthew declared, would beat Mike Tyson. I was never usually one to question my cousin Matthew. I bored everyone in school with Describing the many physical and intellectual attributes my cousin Matthew had compared to other classmates' relatives. When my cousin Matthew told me about the powers of Hulk Hogan, who was I to question him? Well, question I did. To get the measure of just how powerful this man was, I used other measuring sticks of strength all six-year-old boys would have used in 1990. Okay, Hulk Hogan can beat Mike Tyson. Can he beat Batman? Yes, he would beat Batman. Can he beat Superman? Well, Lorcan, we've already established in the past that Batman, when given adequate time to prepare, would defeat Superman. Since Hulk Hogan can beat Batman, he can, therefore, by the transitive property, also defeat Superman. In my memories of him, my cousin Matthew was surprisingly verbose for an eight-year-old. Okay, okay. Could he beat Optimus Prime, fueled by the combined blood of He-Man and Superman, whilst being driven by Batman? It'd knock him out in seconds. This was all I needed to hear. I spent the next few weeks fantasising about what this person must look like. The name was enough to get me started. Who names their child Hulk? You're setting an infant up for a future physical type that they need to achieve to avoid ridicule for the rest of their life. As the weeks passed, and my cousin Matthew taught me more about the exploits of Hulk Hogan, the legend grew ever greater in my mind. He beat Andre the Giant. He beat the Macho Man. He beat the Iron Sheik. He beat the Earthquake. How on earth do you beat an Earthquake? One day after school, my cousin Matthew came over to our house with a look of shock upon his face. It would have suggested a family bereavement had just occurred, but since we were in the same family, I knew this wasn't the case. I, however, main, remained concerned. Matt, what happened? It's Hulk Hogan. He lost. Me, with a pintoresque pause. Who did he lose to? The Ultimate Warrior! The Ultimate Warrior was another name designed to send the mind of a six-year-old wild... What does the ultimate warrior look like? When I finally saw a photo of him and Hogan, I realised that my imagination had let me down even more than when it had convinced me I had a chance with a gorgeous woman at the Coventry Railway Station, WH Smiths, with her pixie haircut and tattooed lyrics of Joy Division on her forearm. Hogan looked like a Swedish porn star that had drunk one too many sunny delights based on the playground rumour at the time of its skin-altering effects. The warrior looked like a girl's Barbie doll that had been stolen and tortured by a sadistic younger brother. To a six-year-old boy, though, they were gods compared to the mere mortal adults I encountered, like teachers and parents. When I studied English and creative writing at the University of Aberystwyth, because I was always career-focused, there was a lecturer I remember because he bore an uncanny resemblance to Gary Oldman, and was of the opinion that he was one of the more hip lecturers in academia. He wore tight-patterned shirts, dropped in Bob Dylan quotes during any appropriate moment, and more often inappropriate moments as well, and very audibly drops the G's at the ending of words to emphasise his realness. He was one of the many people working, however tenuously, within the literary world that snootily dismissed the Harry Potter books. To Gary's mind, the mere existence of this bespectacled wizard was obliged to the written word and was holding down many superior writers who just happened to be lecturing at mid-level tertiary educational establishments, whose 300,000-word treatise on the human condition, told for the prism of Bulgarian post-war industrialised agriculture, remained criminally unpublished. To his mind, there was nothing good that had ever or would ever come from Harry Potter. I wish I had told him at the time that this was nonsense. Regardless of one's feelings about the book... Surely any midnight opening at a bookshop with long queues of excited children outside should only be seen as a good thing. More importantly, it would be the starting point of inspiration for many future writers. In 20 years' time, Professor Oldman would probably be celebrating some new novel written by a hot young talent who had first become interested in the written word because they were transfixed by the stories set in Hogwarts. Even more likely, he'd be making levacious late-night advances on many young ladies whom he met through his lectures that he wouldn't have, who wouldn't have attended them if they didn't believe themselves to be real-life Hermione Granger's but with daddy issues. For most smart wrestling fans, Hulk Hogan and The Ultimate Warrior were our first favourite wrestlers that we now may try to deny or dismiss as folly of our youth. It's like how I tried to claim Pulp's Different Class is the first album that I ever bought, when it was really in my second purchase, after P-Day... P.J. and Duncans, a.k.a. Psych! Hulk Hogan had achieved mainstream exposure with his sporting performance as Thunderlips in Rocky Free. He soon after signed up with Vince McMahon's World Wrestling Federation and almost immediately was installed as their world champion. He held the title for four uninterrupted years and, thanks to canny marketing from McMahon, became the biggest star in modern wrestling history. He was a genuine icon of perhaps the most influential decade of pop culture – for the generation of lapsed wrestling fans a few years older than me, Hulk Hogan is almost the be-all and end-all of their fandom. The Ultimate Warrior seemed to be the one that did it more for those around my age. When my contemporaries and I came into wrestling at the very end of the 80s, or very start of the 90s, we were riding a second wave of popularity that saw a few other wrestlers gain a foothold in the main event and greater public consciousness from following Hulk Hogan's slipstream and in order to cover for him in main events while he was attempting to become a field star shooting big screen classics such as Suburban Commando, Mr. Nanny, and Santa with Muscles. Macho Man Randy Savage and The Ultimate Warrior were the two biggest stars to emerge from that era. Both were completely batshit crazy, and that's why we loved them. Randy Savage was born for YouTube. He was a coked up madman with an immediately recognisable gravelly voice who would fly from the top rope on more than one occasion during a match. His promos could be filled with references to outer space dimensions whilst he simultaneously tried to balance a small container of cream on his head. Somehow, the Ultimate Warrior was even balmier. He almost also made references to planes of existence beyond our own realm and was even billed as being from parts unknown. He screamed of skeletons of long-deceased fellow warriors being alongside him in spirits as he prepared for that night's combat. The Ultimate Warrior was not a mere human being. He was the manifestation of a warrior spirit previously embodied by the likes of King Arthur, Ozymandias and Hercules. Not the rest of Hercules, though. Ultimate Warrior defeated him handily during their early 1988 feud. You just couldn't picture the Ultimate Warrior in his spare time, strolling around a park, walking a labradoodle. He'd, he'd more likely charging through the fires of Hades atop of Cerberus. My cousin Matthew recounted the WrestleMania Six main event collision between Hogan and the Warrior to me in a tone similar to that to Dilios as he narrated Zack Snyder's 300. This was a clash of two super-beings in front of 60,000 rabid onlookers in Toronto. As that night's play-by-play announcer Gorilla Monsoon would say, it was the irresistible force meeting the immovable object. They fought for over 40 minutes, both men making miraculous recoveries after receiving finishing blows that would have kept all of the wrestlers down for the count. Finally, the Ultimate Warrior was able to hold Hogan down for the count of three with his big splash move, The man had, who had never lost fair and square for as long as my cousin Matthew had watched wrestling, had been defeated, and a new champion had been crowned. Trust me to get into something just as it was about to become uncool. The Ultimate Warrior's victory was meant to be a passing of the torch. Hogan had conquered the live-event box office and was leaving to take on Stallone and Schwarzenegger at the movie box office. The Ultimate Warrior would take his place as the unbeatable hero who stood for all that was good and right, and Vince McMahon's WWF would continue to sell out arenas and achieve record ratings for years to come. That wouldn't be the case. Wrestling had reached its peak. It arguably done so already between 1987 and 1989, when neither myself nor my cousin Matthew were watching. At WrestleMania III, Hogan had defeated Andre the Giant. Until Hogan was pushed to the top, Andre had been the biggest name in wrestling for at least the past decade. Because of their shared status as the two biggest names in wrestling, this match was able to sell out the Pontiac Silverdome in Michigan in front of a reported crowd of 93,000 fans. 33 million Americans watched their rematch on primetime network television 11 months later. The rematch ended when Andre and his ally, the million-dollar man, Ted DiBiase, cheated Hogan out of the championship by paying for a man to have facial surgery, making them a doppelganger for the referee assigned to the match. They made the switch on the night, and the phony referee counted free on an Andre pin, despite Hogan visibly kicking out at two. Hogan formed the Mega Powers tag team with Randy Savage in order to counteract EBSA and Andre's terrible twosome. Their breakup and subsequent feud over the WWF Championship, born from Savage's jealousy of Hogan's friendship with Savage's valet and lover, Miss Elizabeth, continued to be a huge attraction on television and arenas wherever the WWF visited, and the good times continued to roll. By 1990, however, the good times mobile was starting to sputter and break down. The Ultimate Warrior was unable to match Hogan's cultural penetration or ticket and merchandise sales. He'd always been a popular act, second only to Hogan in live audience reaction, but it was clear that it was just too much to take in for many with only a passive interest in wrestling. This will seem strange to those who may have watched a Hulk Hogan interview with increasing incredulity, as he yelled about saving Donald Trump from a plane wreck and swimming him to shore, but Hogan was a more relatable character compared to Ultimate Warrior. Maybe it's because Hogan was a human being, an immortal human being in his own words, but still a human being. The Ultimate Warrior was a madman from outer space. If Hulk Hogan and the Ultimate Warrior were music acts, you could say Hogan was Queen and the Ultimate Warrior the Crazy Frog. Both preposterous in their presentation. Both had big hits, but only one had longevity. I may now laugh at the Ultimate Warrior's promos and cringe at many of his matches. But to the six-year-old me, he was incredible. He lifted huge men over his head and dropped them to the ground. His wild hair and face paint made him look like an alien from another planet. Admittedly, it was the sort of planet that Captain Kirk and his Enterprise crew would encounter on a low-budgeted episode. But I believe my feelings as a six-year-old remain valid. Whilst I could barely understand a word, he bellowed, growled or grunted whilst interviewer Mean Gene Oakland or Sean Mooney howled a mo- microphone to his mouth. I certainly believe he planned to win the match he was about to have and all the energy he had within him to achieve that goal, he would use, which is the logic behind every wrestling promo ever made. However, I would soon learn that you need to throw logic out the window when dealing with wrestling. Both the fake stuff in front of the camera and the equally ridiculous events I came to learn were happening behind it. Well, listeners, I hope you enjoyed my rendition of Chapter 1 of Confessions of a Smart Wrestling Fan. And I hope it's... uh Hooked you enough that you purchased the book for yourself. Um, normal service is expected to be resumed next week, barring any more technological uh, issues. But right now, there's nothing left to say that um, if you want to get in touch with m- myself, I'm Simon Cross Free. Uh, free for the number of times. Per month, usually that Lorcan b- had badgered me to buy the book <laughs> before this week. And uh, Lorcan Mullen can be reached on L O R C A N M U L L A for author, N for novelist. Uh, that's also his Instagram handle. Uh, get in touch with the show L M T Y S Pod on Twitter, L M T Y S Pod. It's also our Facebook handle. Uh, you can review the show. On Apple iTunes, five stars. We love talking about them, but we definitely love to receive them too. Uh, you can toss the show some pennies on Patreon as well. Um, but until then, there's nothing left to say except my name's Simon Cross, his name is Lorcan Mullen. Have a great night, time. Until then. Now we're up to place 19 and it looks like the Indians will win And just like life, there's a good beginning but there is no middle So you may as well skip to the end
1: It's the same old story